organisms that only learn through trial and error die out because trial is costly and error is often deadly. Where's the sense of adventure in the world? Why does life have to be seen as going from one pleasant experience to another perfectly pre-planned pleasant experience? Where's the adventure in that? Where are the people out there in the world who go, you know what I wanna do? I wanna go and have, at the end of my life, the most amazing story. I call it the autobiography test. If you want to know if you are on the right track, very simple, right now, today, write out the outline of your autobiography and be very honest with yourself. Would anybody wanna read it besides you and your mom and dad? And the answer for 90% of people is heck no. It's the boringest, least risk-taking, just, just absolute blandness. I'm on my way right now as we, as we speak to the Amish uh, where I lived when I was um, in my early 20s. I just bought a farm in the middle of the Amish community in Virginia. And a lot of times people go like, why would you live with the Amish? And I'm like, why didn't you? <laughs> what do you mean? Why would you know? I've I've been to leper colony. I went to in uh, India. No people wanted to visit it because you could get leprosy and die, which is a good reason to not want to go somewhere. But I was 16 and I was like, why wouldn't I want to do that? Like that sounded great. And you know what? If you do the autobiography test, it's a good freaking story to have a story like that in your life, a story or two. It's a great story to have one, uh, a, a life of adventure where you can say, you know what, I hated my job so one day I just quit. Or I launched it on the side and you know what, it didn't work out perfectly, but you know what, the ride was amazing. Where's all the people who go, the ride is amazing. I feel like society now has so baby and coddled people and we have so much modern convenience that keep us from ever quote unquote being inconvenienced that we miss out on life and the essence of life, which like one of the great uh, philosophers said, he wanted to suck the marrow out of life. You know, like when you're eating chicken and it's so good and you bite into the bone and you just, you want every part of it. That's what life should be. And I'm telling you, that mindset is almost 100% dead. It's dead. There's a few people doing it. You'll meet them here or there. But ask yourself right now. I don't care if you're listening to this and you're 18 years old or you're 60 years old. How's your autobiography looking? If you would write out the chapters, even just a preliminary outline. Is anybody reading this book? Or is it just blah, blah, blah? You're just a robot automaton fitting into a world of robot automatons. Trying to build any company is basically the same. So, okay, which leads me is a good question, John Vosey on Facebook. Here's step number six, seven, okay? I'll give you a few bonus things, uh, steps, but step number seven is this. Know where to go to business networking, okay? And this is a tricky one. And the answer is go to places that are somewhat unexpected for somebody like you to be going to. For example, 
I was talking about this Rihanna thing. And people go, why'd you go to the Rihanna Diamond Ball, which is mostly music executives and artists, if you're not in the music industry? Well, part of me is because I want to get in the music industry, but I like to do what's called cross-pollination. If you look at plants, how do they work? You, you take bees come and they take the pollen and they cross-pollinate from one plant and they fly across the field a mile away and they pollinate something else. That's how you have to think about your business networking. You go to places that are going to take whatever business you're in now and you're going to cross-pollinate it with ideas from other industries. So it's great and you should network in your own industry. There's no problem. I have no problem with that. But in general... Um, at least 50% of the events I go to have nothing directly related to what I'm doing today, but I get ideas. And so when you're talking about the right events, like I said, at least 50% of them should be cross-pollinated businesses that are completely different, okay? Um, the other thing is go focus less on what the event is and more on how sharp the people are that are going to be there. So if I had a choice as an entrepreneur and I could go to a, I don't know, I'm not in the uh, what's something business. Mm. What do I have in my hand here that I can, <laughs> here, paper. Here's a notepad. I always keep notepads. If I could go to a paper convention like the office with Michael Scott, right? I'm not in the paper business at all. But if I knew the sharpest people in the paper industry were there, I would go. Um, I would go to that paper one over a social media one that's full of stupid people. So if the social media one had smarter people, it's not just smart, like book smart or IQ smart. It's sharp. You need sharp people. So you'll get more out of networking with a sharp person in a different industry than you're in or even ever will be in than you will going around people in your industry who are morons and have no common sense. So if I really think like if the name of the event, I don't care what the name of the event is. I'm going, tell me about the average quality of person that's going to be in that building. And if the average quality is good, I'll go for anything, you know? It's a gold mining convention. Okay, conference, seminar. I'll go. You know, it's somebody developing new HR security or, uh, sorry, corporate security software. I don't care. I'm not in that business, but I'll still go there and be like, man, because here's the deal. If you get one tip that you can cross-pollinate into what you're doing, Remember the word game theory. If you go to the same events all your competitors are going to, you're getting the same advice that all your competitors are putting in practice and they're doing it at the same time as you, which necessarily means it won't work as well. One of my big advantages is I go, I, ha, I a lot of times, not always, have been able to stay ahead of my competitors because they're all going to the same events where I'm going to events that are completely different. I cross-pollinate and bring in ideas from other places. And all of a sudden, I come up with an idea, not because I'm so smart, but because I cross-pollinated it. You know? So, let's see. Hybrid thinking, someone called it. Lateral thinking. Yeah, that's all very... That's a good way. I mean, that's what some people call this, lateral thinking.
grow any physical business, like you have a store, you have a restaurant, I'll give you a few pieces of advice. Okay. Number one, follow everything else I've been talking about. As you get out to conferences, seminars, um, mixers, charity dinners are great. The Rihanna thing I was at is a charity dinner. As you get out and go to those, your jujitsu school is going to grow because you're going to meet somebody who connects you to a, I don't know, a marketing channel that you didn't know about. They might be like, hey, I've been advertising in the newspaper and it's working great for me because believe it or not, old school advertising sometimes works. Sometimes billboard works. Sometimes, um, you know, radio ads work and sometimes they fail. So if you're cross-pollinated ideas, they spent their money learning that radio ads don't work. You don't have to spend your own. So it becomes a propulsion. You, you propel yourself much quicker than if you're doing it by trial and error. Remember this. One of the great books of all time is by a guy named, I interviewed uh, him not too long ago, Richard Dawkins. He was voted at one point the smartest man in the world. And what he says in his book, The Selfish Gene, is that organisms that only learn through trial and error die out. And he's talking about species and evolution. They die out because trial is costly right and error is often deadly you know someone said ty richard dawkins is kind of stupid whoever wrote that i question your intelligence richard dawkins is not (laughs) stupid you might not agree with all his theories but that's like calling arnold schwarzenegger and that's like calling the rock weak you might not like how his body looks but you wouldn't call him weak would you The other thing is one slight difference for the most part from all of these. Even though this sounds weird for me to say, I don't necessarily see me myself as a motivational speaker. I don't want to be known as a motivational speaker. I don't even see myself as an entrepreneur as like what I want to be remembered for. You know, I always say on my tombstone, I call this the, the, you know, the tombstone test. When you die, what do you want written on your grave about you? In your like ideal world, what do you want written about you? I don't want entrepreneur written. I definitely don't want motivational speaker. Um, why? You know, I don't know. Why would I want it? What's, that's not my thing. So Tony Robbins will have motivational speaker and all this, and that's great. That's what he wants. That's his vision. That's his. What I want is like, He was an adventurous, mad scientist who lived a badass life. That's what I care about. And badass, by my definition, and a lot of people share my definition, you know, I'm very much, I'd say, adventurous. So like some of these guys, we live completely different lifestyles. You know, I'm obviously, I'm single, so I'm gonna have more girls around. Grant Cardone's married, Gary Vee's married, Tony Robbins is married, Tim Ferriss I don't think is married. Um, so I'm gonna talk about women and some people are gonna get pissed off. I'm gonna have pretty, I, I'm basically almost like my life is like a 24 hour, not quite 24 hour, but let's say a 24 hour reality show where I just show the camera and some people are like, wait a sec, Ty, why are you showing yourself salsa dancing? Like, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, that's all part of my plan, which is 
live a badass life and share what I'm doing. And if that gives other people ideas, then they go with it. You know, but that's what I want to be remembered for. And I think you got to think about that for yourself. Like what, do you want to say you are a great father, a great mother? You want that to be your main thing? Then go out and have a lot of, get married young and have a lot of damn kids. One of my friends, Joe, uh, Joe Pace, we've been friends since I was like two years old. He got, we went two different paths and I don't think my path's better than him. And I don't think his path's better than me. They're different. They're one of the greatest things of all times is there's no solution. There's only the trade-offs. So he got married literally to basically his first girlfriend. He got married at, I don't know, 20. He had four kids by the time he was like 26. And I got none. And that was like his goal. He wanted to do that. So he's winning. And that wasn't part of my plan. I didn't want to have four kids by the time I was 26. So I got different goals. So you, that's why I said, think of your tombstone. You know, I told you I'd give you a few bonus things. We talked about the seven things you need to know to be a better business networker. And now I'm talking about like what some other things unrelated to business networking. It's all kind of related, but what do you want on that grave of yours? Because we all headed there quicker than you can think. And most, and not everybody's living to 100 years old. Not everybody's living to 50. Some people guarantee you, some people will be off this planet, maybe me, the next time I do this live call. You know, so you have to, as I think it was Thoreau or Emerson said, you got to suck the marrow out of life. You know, like when you're eating like good chicken or good steak, sometimes you bite down on a bone and you get like every little piece of meat off of it. You're like, yes. You know, someone said, how about Dan Bilzerian lifestyle? You know, Dan was over at the house. Dan Bilzerian got his goals and he's definitely pulling off his goals. You know, Dan Bilzerian likes action. He's an action guy. He likes poker. He likes women, obviously. He, he, um, and so I, who am I to judge his thing? My main question is, as long as you, whether you're Dan Bilzerian, me or anyone else, are moving towards the goal you would like to have, and that goal makes sense, there's like common sense, it's not idiotic, then I'm like, great. I think there's 12 foundations of wealth, 12. Now there's obviously more, okay, but I'm trying to, look, the whole point of a book is like get to the point. So I'm trying to get to the point, I think there's 12 principles of success, literally. I'm sorry, specifically around financial wealth. My 67 steps was like around life. There's like 67 things I needed to know about life that my mentors taught me. But with the 12 foundational things, the 12 foundations, that's what you need to know about money. So there's basically, for example, you need to understand, and this is also updated for the most cutting edge for the year we live in. Not for, you know, I built the 67 steps in 2014 and that's good. But what works in 2014 is not always relevant for 2017 or it won't be relevant for 18 or 19. You have to update it. It's just like iPhones. We're not still rocking the iPhone 4. Hopefully some people are. But the foundations, for example, you need to understand the psychology of people, reading people. There's a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that was written by Dale Carnegie a long time ago. 
I think the updated one, because the world is much more complicated, there's much more insane people in the world, I'm fairly sure. Well, I know for a fact, because there's more people. So numerically, the ratio, even if it stays the same, of how many crazy people there are in the world, there's a lot more. If 1% of people are crazy, in the year 1900, there was about a billion people on the planet. So you'd have roughly 10 million crazy people. Now we have 7.3, so there's, all, there's about 70 million insane people. And I'm not talking about mental illness, like people that you should feel sorry for, but I'm talking about psychos. So this new program is going to teach you fundamentals and I'm sorry, foundational principles. So you need to be able to repeat. So it's six of the mindset principles of wealth and six practical ones. So practical ones, I want to teach you e-commerce. I want to teach you tech. I want to teach you social media. I want to teach you marketing, uh, the marketing sales persuasion side, entrepreneurship, which to me is how to launch ideas quickly. Okay, so there's about six practical things that you must master these foundations or there's really no hope for you. I don't care if you go to college. I've taught at Harvard, number one business school in the world. I've taught at London Business School, number two business school in the world. I've taught at UCLA, I'm uh, not UCLA, sorry, USC. These are the top, top schools. I've seen what, and there's a lot of good stuff at colleges, don't get me wrong, but they're missing a lot of stuff. When I spoke at London Business School, I said, I'll take questions. I spoke from, did the keynote speech from 12 to 1. And then I said, I'll take questions. From 1 p.m., people, I said, I'll be outside. I don't want to disturb the main thing. Any questions? There was a crowd of top business people asking me questions. Literally from 1 p.m. It was the longest I ever talked. I stood up and talked from 1 p.m. to midnight. It was a 10 and a half, close to 11 hour talk. When I went home, it was the fastest I've ever fallen asleep and I literally slept for almost 24 hours because I had just flown in from Los Angeles. It was, it was when I did my TEDx talk in 2014. So the point that I'm trying to make by this is that the foundational things you need to know, one of them is what I just talked about now, business networking. Like where's that class in high school? Everything I told you, the psychology of people, the reciprocation techniques. Why wasn't this taught? Why were we only taught repetitively? Repetitively. I can tell you that Helena is the capital of Montana. How has that helped me in life? I could have just Googled it. Yeah, maybe in 1940 when Google didn't exist, we needed to memorize every unneeded fact, but we don't now. So now you use Google for all the unnecessary stuff and you store in your brain all the things that you have to have quick recall. You can't be Googling stuff when somebody walks up to you in a business networking setting and going, okay, let me Google reciprocation. You need to have that stored in the brain. So there's a big problem in the world that like the stuff we don't need to memorize, you're forced to memorize from age six to age 18, costing between $150,000 and $200,000 per student in the United States in most states of taxpayer dollars, real money going out, almost a quarter of a million dollars. If you just gave people that money and had a, a better way to educate people that was more efficient, most schools now are literally daycare. You think people are, you think kids are actually learning from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m.? You really think so? <laughs> My ass, go, let's go to a school together. You think people are really, most of the students are just, you think most kids can absorb, you know, most kids have horrible parents, horrible home situations, maybe no parents. 
They come to school hungry. They come to school tired. They come to school hyped up on sugar. You think they're learning the whole time? Why not just teach people for two hours? Then go have them do music, exercise, language, jujitsu, boxing, learn some piano, learn Mandarin Chinese and Hindi. Those two languages, almost half the world speaks those two languages. Would a good school system that's properly updating it, itself and not staying antiquated in the year, you know, 1643. Our education system is not much different than 1800s and even 1700s. We don't have one room classrooms. We just have one big room. So whatever you do, not only rely on other people to learn, but rely on self-education. As Jim Rohn said, a formal education will make you a living, but self-education will make you a fortune. Not guaranteed, but if you look at people who made a fortune, whether or not they went to college is irrelevant. It's how much self-education and whether they became a learning machine. Step number one, realize you're going to have to stop looking at some point. Step number two, make a list of your must-haves. So when specifically for those of you who are entrepreneurs, when you want to launch a new product or you're not sure what business to start, make your criteria list. I want my business, say, to be able to work from home. I want it to be in art or something like that. And maybe three criteria. And then you go to number three, which is when you look at your choices, look at things that maybe compliment you even with career that um like you said if you're looking for a business partner let's say look for a business partner that has traits you don't know how to teach so i i I got a perfect example right now i started a business uh in silicon valley me and a a friend alex 50 50 partners it's now the biggest book shipping non-fiction book shipping club club in the world called mentor box um and with mentor box uh i basically said this guy's super good at execution and I'm good at coming up with ideas. So the reason the partnership works is he has something that I don't like. I, it's that I know how to teach execution. I hate doing it. So following your rule, it's like it's perfect fit because I don't have to teach what I don't know how to teach or I don't like teaching. And all the other stuff that we don't know about each other evolves over time. And let me just say related to that, that this is one of the reasons why diversity in companies is such a benefit because people come into the room and if everyone's a carbon copy of everybody else, all they, you know, you've got an echo chamber, everyone has the same idea and thinks it's great. You bring people together who come from different backgrounds and have different perspectives and the echo chamber goes away. Instead, you make some harebrained suggestion and somebody tells you why it's harebrained. And, you know, I don't think people deliberately uh, organize their companies so that everyone's a copy of them. You know, instead they talk about, quote, fit. We want to hire people who fit the culture, which basically means we want to hire people who are just like us. And it's a disastrous way to run a business in general, and especially so at this time in life when every business is potentially, um, you know, international in scope and multicultural in potential audience. 
So you need to make sure that the people in the room, as you put it, complement one another. And often that means making sure that the people in the room have significantly different backgrounds in addition to having different skill sets. Do you disagree? There was a big controversy um, on Google where the, a guy wrote, he got fired by Google. He was a lead programmer and he said, there's not a lot of women as computer programmers and that's because of genetics. I want to talk about genetic. First, let's talk about that and then let's talk about genetics in general for this maximizer, satisfizer. Do you agree? He wrote a long argument. Certain people backed him um, and said, yes, women are not good programmers because their mind is not as systematic. And then other people said, that's BS. Women are the same as men. And you're saying that you think the diversity outweighs it all. Well, look, there are a couple of questions. As an empirical matter, is it true that there are more first-class uh, coders who are men than women? I don't know the answer to that. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. So suppose it's true. Then the question is, well, why? And so one, one, one possible explanation for why is that there's some biological difference. Another, which to me is much more plausible, is that there's a difference in socialization, which means you bring different people into the organization hire for what you don't know how to train, and then you teach them how to code. And you end up with a richer organization. Um, you know, so he had this theory that really not only are women worse coders than men, but there's nothing you could do to make that, to change that. Uh, the first may be true. The second, I find highly doubtful. Um, you know, at the college level, I discovered this at Swarthmore, there were almost as many women majoring in computer science as men. 20 years, 20 years before, that was not remotely true. If you found one or two women doing computer science, it was a lot. And that's not true anymore. So in less than a generation, the, um, you know, the playing field got leveled, at least in the, at, the, at the level of the college classroom. You know, so I think these are... These are differences that are relatively easily overcome. And what you gain in diversity more than compensates for the little extra training you might have to do to bring women up to, to the extent that, that that's even true, which it may not be true. So I don't think the guy should have been fired, by the way, but I think he was wrong.